0: Everybody. Ha,
1: ha, ha. Ho, ho, ho. hee hee he. Ha!
2: Access Utah. This
3: is Sherry Queen.
4: <laughs> so does everybody feel a little better now?
3: You just heard a laughing class put Every on by a group day called day Fresh day Start, day an organization overseen by Valley Mental Health. That was how the class, Happiness One O One, started, and Ralph teaches about a dozen psychiatric patients twice a week how laughter is the best medicine. Valley Mental Health manages almost all mental health care across Salt Lake, Tooele, and Summit Counties, from people with serious mental illnesses like schizophrenia and bipolar patients, to people with substance abuse disorders and behavioral problems like obsessive-compulsive disorder and depression.
2: Valley Mental Health has been the major and almost only mental health care provider across the Wasatch Front for the past two decades. It was this not-for-profit entity that held the Medicaid contract issued by the state of Utah who prepaid them yearly to assess, manage, and distribute basically all the funds allocated to helping the mentally ill. And they were recently dethroned by a multi-billion dollar health insurance company called United Health Group, who manages a subsidiary called Optum, who now calls the shots. In a two-part series, SQ Radio reports on what's being referred to as a crisis in mental health care. It started at the end of 2011 and is still a rough transition because Valley Mental Health was a Goliath that no one thought would ever fall.
5: We're facing a, a, an impending sort of tragic situation for a lot of patients.
2: That is clinical psychiatrist Dr. Noel Gardner. He resigned from Valley Mental Health along with a large number of his fellow clinicians. He explains why.
5: The centerpiece of that process was a deep sense of responsibility for patients who are highly vulnerable, and also a strong sense of camaraderie with our colleagues, nurses, social workers, therapists, uh, caseworkers—that uh, we work as as a team, uh, trying to provide these services—and uh, it it felt like uh, abandoning people you care deeply about. So, uh, you know, I think many of us st- stayed long beyond the time we felt that it was healthier, or good for us to do.
2: Dr. Gardner says the deal-breaker was the micromanagement of the encounters the clinicians had with their patients, where administrators prioritized mass production efficiency rather than putting the patient first.
5: It began to feel like every person was simply a source of information to be generated into the electronic record and increasingly we were told that we had to see more and more patients in less and less time with more and more data collection to the point that eighty eighty five percent of our time uh... was computer face time in ten fifteen twenty percent of our time was patient face to face time and the
2: computer work was stacking up
5: and what was so sad for us was that it wasn't very useful information it felt like we were simply generating documentation to make it appear like we were providing the care when in fact the care itself we were providing some of it but it 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 was so drained of the personal element that is essential to good quality care that it it felt meaningless to do it now i understand that people felt the obligation to bring these to bear there were requirements for reporting certain things, but the whole bureaucratic attempt to bring efficiencies uh, in uh, the process uh, had become so removed from the clinical reality that what we were doing uh, no longer made sense, and it felt like there was huge liability. That is, we were not adequately able to engage the patient, get sufficient information uh, to feel confident in the decision-making necessary within the time frames that were being required that it felt like we were carrying the medical legal liability for people in decision-making that we just simply didn't have the time to make good decisions and still meet all the requirements the that were being placed upon it.
2: I am walking into a downtown Salt Lake City pharmacy, with who we are calling B. H. Cool He's an old friend, and who wishes to remain anonymous, and is currently a patient at Valley Mental Health.
4: I need
6: to pick up the refill. Well, I'm picking up antipsychotic medication, because it's the same Walgreens that I pick up my antipsychotic medication from, from uh, Valley Mental Health.
2: And what's your experience been like with Valley Mental Health?
6: Um, well, they're, they're somewhat accommodating. Um, mean, my, my therapist came downstairs because I wasn't able to climb upstairs, even though his office was upstairs. But um, they, they don't have any psychiatrists that I get to see, so it's, it's an RN that uh, prescribes my medication for me. The RN was just, you know, going through the different um, the different possible antipsychotic medications, and um, he basically let me pick what medication I wanted because the the previous antipsychotic medication had my legs kicking; um, I was having spasms, and originally picked I think it was Abilify for me. This is the one I had the, the problem with, and um, but uh, I just recently chose uh, Olanzapine as my drug of choice. I've had a, a psychologist that's a licensed psychologist, but I've never seen a psychiatrist uh, at all at Valley Mental Health.
2: Do you, do you find it takes longer now to get appointments, prescriptions, that.
6: I don't think it really takes longer to to get those things. I mean they schedule everything. It's just that the access to a psychiatrist is is impossible. I feel like I'm getting less care than maybe what I need. So that's that's a little sad. And you know, I, I guess the times to get in to see a psychologist uh, are fewer and uh, more far between. I was told that I I couldn't see one anyway if if I wanted to. And that's a bit of a bummer. I don't know. I mean, the therapist was a good therapist, but it just seemed like he was running out of advice to give. When he ran out of it, he just kind of kept reiterating what he was saying before. So, I don't know. Uh, I I just, I grade the whole thing at you know, a C-minus experience, but I don't really have any other locations to compare it with.
5: So it's not so much that I, I feel like these are bad people. I think their intentions were good. Uh, but mental health treatment is a very personal thing and it takes time and it takes relationship and it takes communication and it felt like we had begun to exist for the purpose of generating documentation for the purpose of billing and that the patients were really grist for that rather than that the entire administration was in the service of providing us the opportunity to do sufficient care, personal care, that was really quality for the patients. In many ways, healthcare has been hijacked, in a sense, by a set of sort of corporate, and it's not just sort of profit or, or cost savings. It is this idea that quality care will, will do uh, sort of the exact same thing with every patient. And now, if you're building Toyotas, Uh, you want to have very precise consistent uh, systems so that those cards are put together in a very precise exactly the same way every time so they come off with this kind of perfection the problem is when you're dealing with people every person is unique I mean and it's we're not treating diseases we're treating persons and every even if they share the same diagnosis That diagnosis is completely a different entity in one individual than it is in another. Uh, In the kind of relationship you form takes unique personal skills to make that therapeutic experience work. It takes trusting the clinician to do the work. We need to reclaim a sense of the professional trust. That is, these are people who are trained with extensive clinical experience to do this kind of work. Now we need to trust them to do that. Rather than to, than to try to micromanage every bit of the data, every bit of the processes to turn people into Toyotas coming off an assembly line so that we can bill for that chunk of service, collect the, the revenue, uh, there is this kind of delusional thinking that somehow that is quality improvement in healthcare. And it's not quality improvement.
2: at the pharmacy called Apothecary where the main clientele are patients with behavioral health disorders on Medicaid. Pharmacist and owner Kevin DeMoss is dispensing drugs the new way.
7: This is an uh, it's an automed fill, automatic dispensing system and then it's just like a great big uh, battleship game like I9 and A4 and then it tells us it tells us where their where their prescription's going to fall out of.
3: DeMoss is upset. He sees patients every day coming in unable to fill their prescriptions because now they can't get in fast enough to see their doctors. Doctors who are overwhelmed stretch thin because of major cutbacks and now Optum, who's taken over the contract, has a very different management style, throwing yet another curveball into the field.
7: Patients establish a relationship with their caregiver whether it's their medical doctor, their psychiatrist, their psychologist, their nurse, their rep payee, their therapist, their social worker, their dentist, their pharmacist. Each one of these each one of these patients who deliver that service, that fee for service, there's a relationship developed between that patient and that provider. All the way down to the pharmacy. And when that and then when that is eliminated or disrupted in any way, oftentimes the patients are going to find another provider. If they're able, they're going to find another provider that they're comfortable with that they can share their intimacies with that they can share their fears with and their anxieties or their aggressions or their feelings. It's very difficult to go in and establish that visit after visit after visit with a new provider with someone you've never seen before. They're the most timid. They're the most vulnerable of any of the patient populations that we deal with. They're the less stable of all, and they need the most care. That's why it's so critical that they can have that, that relationship with their provider because it helps them to maintain the dignity and their operating level that they've been accustomed to every day. We talk about it all day long. Where are you at? How, how's your anxiety? How's your aggression? How are you doing with your agitation? Are you taking your meds? Are you taking them with food? Are you taking them at night? We go through and we plan every pa- every patient's medication um, management system for them, so that they can have the very very best outcome. And then when I don't see my patients, that's they're left they're left to do it on their own, and they can't.
5: This has been happening in healthcare, all of healthcare, for the last couple of decades, uh, so it's not unique to mental health or to Valley. I think it was accelerated. Uh, by the coming Optum contract and the implications of it. And internally, Valley tried to accommodate to those expected sort of uh, changes uh, with strategies that have have made it harder and harder for clinicians to do their work. Increasingly, and that's what happened in my world, I found myself with doctors and advanced practice nurses having left, these people who are on antipsychotic medications need their medications refilled. I have no place to put them in my schedule. I already have my patient load. So I'm signing off refills of medications for large numbers of people uh, who I've never seen, uh, which we're always told don't be prescribing and managing people, people you've never examined and know nothing about.
6: Basically, there's nothing, there's nothing for my symptoms. If I have symptoms or I feel like I'm having an episode, I can call and arrange an appointment but that's anywhere from, you know, four days to a few weeks out um, to see anyone. And so it's not uh, an emergency it's, it's an emergency room style operation. And that, that's just to see my psychiatrist. Um, but I mean, I could always arrange to, to go see the guy again because he only, he only is giving me five minutes of his time before he's prescribed me pills. So I think the pressure's on him to push people through like, uh, like a cattle farm.
5: This is a crisis point we need to sit down and rethink where we're at. Uh, because just simply acting like everything is normal uh, is not gonna solve a problem that is, is waiting for a major tragedy.
3: Pharmacist DeMoss recalls one of these critical incidents where he witnessed one of his female patients in his pharmacy heading down that volatile path.
7: So she came in and talked to me on a Saturday, and she was very, very concerned that she was gonna run out of her medication before her doctor's appointment. And she knew that in the back of her mind that was gonna precipitate an emergency room visit and possibly a hospital um, an admit for her. So if she was left without uh, this very important medication for uh, the five to seven day gap before she got in to see her doctor, she knew in her heart and in her mind that she was convinced that she would relapse and end up in the hospital.
3: And consequences in the emergency room at the University of Utah Hospital are also apparent to Dr. Troy Madsen, Research Director in Emergency Medicine.
8: Uh, I definitely have seen an increase in the number of patients we see with psychiatric issues or or psychiatric complaints. That's been my experience and it also is supported by looking at some of the numbers over the last few years where it has increased over the last couple of years by about maybe about seven percent. And uh, in terms of the psychiatric patients they make up about probably seven or eight percent of the patients that we do see in the ER. Um, So it's a pretty good chunk when you figure one out of you know every fifteen, ten or fifteen patients you see is going to be there for some kind of a psychiatric reason. Um, And, uh, you know, that may be in part because we do work closely with with uni, with the University Neuropsychiatric Institute, and so we do a lot of kind of working with them, screening patients for them. I think that's probably a big contributor to the large percentage of psychiatric patients we see. But I have seen, definitely seen those numbers go up in the last few years.
3: It seems that this healthcare crisis has a tremendous ripple effect overflowing into our streets and infiltrating our social programs, hospitals, and even the jails.
5: We need a mechanism for rethinking mental health care in which the severe, persistent mentally ill are the first priority and that we take care of that population. If we don't, many of them will become homeless. They'll be in jails because they uh, often unintentionally commit crimes. They're caught loitering, breaking and entering. Uh, sometimes they will become paranoid and commit serious crimes. And uh, I do a fair amount of forensic expert witness work on criminal cases. Uh, it's a great tragedy that these people end up often in the criminal justice world.
9: We used to always talk about how the, the biggest psychiatric hospital in the state is in the jail, and the prison. Basically, little, little psychiatric hospitals inside of all the jails and prisons in every county in this state and around the, around the country.
3: That was Trent Holmberg, the former director of psychiatric services at Salt Lake County Jail, who now has a private practice as a psychiatrist. The job at the jail just got too tough.
9: When we do treat people once they're incarcerated, it's kind of with a half-hearted effort in terms of the, the financial support to, to back that kind of an effort because it's a Herculean task to treat you know hundreds of thousands of mentally ill people in jails and prisons around the country.
3: And it is really expensive to buy the necessary drugs for these patients, roughly 50,000 per month, and that's bare bones for these highly specialized drugs.
9: It's really reaping what was sown a few generations ago when when the insane asylums became state hospitals and the state hospitals became criticized as being a place to warehouse mentally ill people.
5: I am amazed at how few people really understand the history of community mental health and the history of the development of psychiatry, uh, including the top leadership of each of these organizations who I think largely have sort of accepted the way things are and don't always fully appreciate sort of the context. So let me just say a couple of things that are essential to understand. Community mental health is a product of uh, some things that happened way back uh, over uh, 50, 60 years ago. That is, prior to about uh, the early 1960s, mid-50s, early 60s, uh, psychiatric care for this population was done in state hospitals. Uh, these are people for whom there was no treatment. The very first antipsychotic medication that allowed the the quieting of all of these uh, hallucinations and voices and the severe agitation, the very first antipsychotic became available in the United States in 1954. Prior to that, uh, these people were housed often in state hospitals that had anywhere from 1,200 to sometimes 10,000, 12,000 patients in one state hospital on huge, sprawling compounds. And uh, there was really no treatment for these people other than to keep them housed and clean and safe and fed, which was a very valuable service to people otherwise who would have been homeless. Uh, What this new treatment did is allowed moving those people into the community. And there was a large government action to establish community mental health centers in the community that allowed us to treat and maintain these people in the community. that is how it was established, and that was really the primary investment in the precursors, the organizations, community, mental health systems that were here before Valley Mental Health. And these were largely government uh, agencies. Some, can, some states do it as a state phenomenon. Here we've done it uh, primarily administered through counties. But the commitment was to this very severe, persistent, chronic, disabling mental illness.
2: What then happened was the government enacted Medicaid, and it became entitlement insurance, providing mental health care to anybody who qualified based on their financial situations. The working poor and many who were not working qualified for Medicaid and were entitled to these services. More and more people who did not have serious mental illnesses then began to flood the system.
5: and in many ways overwhelmed it, uh, often with people who had emotional difficulties because they had horrific, difficult, challenging lives, but weren't really people who had clearly defined mental illnesses that were readily treated by sort of the sort of kind of standard effective mental health treatments we had for serious mental illness. That is a context that is never discussed, and it is one of the foundational issues that must be addressed and are not being addressed
2: the cost of providing government-based insurance like Medicaid became a more crucial issue, increasing pressure on bureaucratic leadership at the county, state, and federal levels to try to drive efficiency into that system. They began to micromanage every aspect, requiring loads of documentation expected faster and faster.
5: So increasingly... Uh, we were treating people who were not the sickest people for whom our treatments had only a modest degree of benefit, even though uh, they may have some benefit. And as a clinician, you take each patient in their pain and their difficulty and do whatever you can to try to help them. Uh, but in the process, uh, began to, to, to squeeze out more and more the, the needs of people who had no real capacity to function in the community without not only medication, but a whole set of support services to maintain them in the community. And this really then is the fundamental crisis. I was horrified that day.
3: This is the rest of the story of Kevin Damas's patient who ran out of her medication and had to go to the emergency room.
7: As I thought about that and as I processed that information after she left, I thought to myself, what is happening to our system? Where are those services that we fund? These are taxpayer dollars that the county has. What's happening to those services? Why do these patients have to come and suffer and can't get access to health care that they deserve and that they've had? The providers have been cut, but the patients haven't been cut. We still have the same patient population and same patient load that we've had for years and years and years, but the availability of services for these patients has diminished greatly. I do not know where the money has gone. And then I see my patients who have to sit in the pharmacy for extended periods of time just to process the information on the cutbacks that they are having to deal with. But I only see the cutbacks on a patient level. I don't see those on a management level.
5: It's the wrong system. There may be very nice people. I've met people in this, and I think they're nice, well-meaning people, uh, but it is the wrong construct for this population, and we need a mechanism for rethinking mental health care in which the severe, persistent mental ill are the first priority.
2: Optum has taken over the state Medicaid contract and is now overseeing Valley Mental Health. We will hear from Optum and explore how all the players, like Tim Whalen, foresee the treatment and quality of life for Utah's psychiatric patients.
4: First and foremost, they wanna do what's right for the folks that are suffering with mental illness and addiction disorders, but secondarily, it helps us to avoid uh, unnecessary costs in the jail and incarcerating folks in the jail that really, they're only there as a result of their mental illness.
8: Support for science questions comes from the College of Science at Utah State University, where graduates' acceptance rates to medical, dental, and graduate schools exceed national averages. When students and faculty learn together, discovery follows. Information is at usu.edu slash science. (laughs)
2: You were listening to a group of Alliance House members in the parking lot of their apartment complex, once an old motel just off State Street in downtown Salt Lake City, now nicely renovated to house nine residents who can live independently but are in treatment for mental illness. Feral cats surround the place and are well-fed here, one rubs up against Tinica's lawn chair as she tosses more pine cones into the copper fire pit. The Alliance House, in partnership with Valley Mental Health, a nonprofit organization that has been the major health care provider across the Wasatch front for the past two decades, provides a clubhouse environment for adults struggling with severe and persistent mental illness. They offer education, employment opportunities, and other services to help rebuild their dignity and life skills so they can proudly integrate back into the community.
1: What I get out of it now is the place to go, the something to do that the job provides for you. But the therapy brought me out of my mental illness. The dazed and confused look on my face is gone and I've got the 18 months of stability. That's all from the work order day, the work therapy program here at Alliance
3: House. Robert was diagnosed with schizophrenia after becoming a truck driver, where he spent long hours on the road, often staying awake through the night. This literally drove him to the edge and landed him, luckily, at the Alliance House, where he says the structure and support here helped him recover. Hi, welcome to Alliance House. We have, this is a work therapy
1: program, and we're made up of three units. We have a career unit, career development unit, a business unit, and a culinary unit. I'll show you a room, and we prepare breakfast for a dollar. Lunch is a dollar fifty okay, we'll nutritious meal. This is our kitchen. What kind of meals do you prepare? Everything from salads and to uh, pork chops and fried potatoes they have a the members and the staff work together in the kitchen. They develop the menus they go shopping they get the they they come up with recipes to make and they cook the food and clean up afterwards. It's all done by members and staff, but there's not enough staff to
3: support all the work, so the members have to pitch in and help. And that's the therapy. Robert was recently hired full-time by Valley Mental Health as an intake clerk. Another member, Tinika, was a practicing family law attorney until hospitalized for bipolar disorder so many times that her doctor told her she had to be committed. She quit her job and moved in with her mother, sleeping on her couch for several months. It was then she discovered the Alliance House.
10: I went from being, you know, as an attorney, highly, highly productive to non-functioning. And I remember the first time I came here, I was helping uh, one of the staff people roll napkins around silverware, and I just bawled. I was like some place where I can actually be and feel useful after you know, months had gone by without practicing or doing anything. And so now I feel like I'm back in the throes. I still practice a little bit of law, I just argued a case before the Utah Supreme Court, and then I've got two cases that are just kind of random. But it's like I didn't have the ability to do that without Alliance House kind of, in essence, kind of normalizing it for me. And it seems strange, because it's like, would any employment normalize it for me? I think that it's Alliance House's ability to say, despite the mental illness, you can work, you can be productive, you can, you know, and not just in an employment sense but in every functional sense. And that's where I think it becomes really important. The Alliance
3: House provides what they call colleagues or members a space to convene, build relationships and job skills. Their philosophy is to eliminate any hierarchy between care providers and those with mental illness, opposing the stigma associated with mental disorders and promoting equality and trust. Through the clubhouse, Tinica had affordable housing down the street and worked for Valley as a care coordinator. She mentored fellow members by sharing her personal struggle with mental illness and guides them through the treatment process, ensuring they navigate benefits, doctors and medications.
10: My fear is we have some clients, for example, I have a client, we we spend an enormous amount of time saying, what do you say to the voices? When the voices say something, what can you say back to them? that's going to stop, that's going to make you feel better. When the voices tell you you're stupid, you know, can you say you're just my mental illness? And, I mean, you know, are they going to pay for that? I don't know. But there has been a radical change.
3: As of 2011, United Health Group a multi-billion dollar for-profit health insurance company, has taken the reins of the state mental health care contract and has delegated a subsidiary, Optum, to manage all the funds for the mental health care system in Salt Lake County. The new management has a new philosophy that minimizes inpatient care and focuses on efficiency, increasing the number of contractors, providing more services in less time and for less money. The Alliance House hopes to continue business as usual with the same model, In 2010, they had 12 members graduate from high school and put 30% of their members back to work.
0: So we're uh, greatly proud of doubling that national average.
2: Dan Braun is the executive director of Alliance House, which oversees roughly 400 members who have been diagnosed with a severe and persistent mental illness.
0: I look at the relationships as the glue. For any of the work or education they're doing in the clubhouse, relationships are that glue that helps hold everything together and provides the support that's necessary as well.
2: Tinica is proud of these relationships. In fact, she says she has made lifelong friends out of working so closely with other members mentoring each other. Under the new management, she worries about maintaining the funding and intimacy the Alliance House provides.
10: Our concern is if, if we had to close Clubhouse because of a lack of funding, we would have a lot of people who would be struggling. We have one member who wants to make sure we're open every day until 5 because he's going to be here until 5 because he needs the structure. And so you have a lot of people with un- lack of structure. And if you compare the cost of clubhouse to the cost of jails for crimes that are committed, even petty crimes, vagrancy, drug use, that kind of stuff, you, you compare those two, the cost is minuscule to keep a clubhouse open um, and keep people supported in the community. So it's critical.
2: It is important to know the Alliance House is its own nonprofit. And though they currently get a large portion of their funding through Valley Mental Health, and now Optum, they aren't solely dependent on it. But Dan has his concerns as well about the future.
0: My main concern, and this is speaking as a therapist as well, and, and knowing people in, the, in managed healthcare, is episodes of care and the pre-authorization process. I'm afraid that members won't be able to get the services they need because of these pre-authorizations and episodes of care. An
2: episode of care is the set of services required to manage a specific medical condition of a patient.
0: I work to look at it like somebody with diabetes. Oftentimes it takes different amounts of time and different services from their medical provider to get their diabetes under control and and manageable. And we don't usually say, you can see a doctor five times, and you can have uh, such and such services for three weeks. And if you aren't better by that time, oh well. You're on your own. And I'm afraid that's what might happen to people with mental health issues. If they don't stabilize in a certain amount of time or with a certain amount of services, oh well. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where recovery happens, and it is so positive because of that. It's exhausting, and it's the most rewarding piece because we see the members succeed.
2: Since our interview with Tinica, she has secured a full-time job as a Valley Mental Health Contract Attorney. Congratulations, Tinica. Dr. Noel Gardner is a clinical psychiatrist who resigned in the summer of 2011 as a clinician from Valley because he was fed up with how the administration was micromanaging his efforts with patients. And upon leaving, he was able to talk candidly with us about the crisis.
5: What happened is, after talking to the mayor, and we, the mayor wrote a letter to the board of directors uh, encouraging the board to meet with the providers, this was a group of the prescribing providers, advanced practice nurses and psychiatrists, uh, which we did, and we laid out our deep concerns, uh, and the board basically dismissed us summarily out of hand, basically showed absolutely no interest uh, in our concerns uh, at that point we felt desperate we felt the system was in such grave danger and we could see the handwriting was on the wall that we were at this tipping point and at that point we spoke to a uh, reporter from the uh, Salt Lake Tribune who put out I think a, a quite fair front page uh, article and uh At that point, we were called in and disciplined. And uh, it was quite clear that uh, uh, we were not in any way to speak to the media again. And it was only after uh, resigning that uh, I was uh, responsive to your asking me to speak.
3: Dr. Gardner does not lay all the blame on Valley Mental Health and says it's a fundamental issue in health programs in general, where administration and bureaucracy call the shots and not the clinicians whose relationships with the patients lend to policy and models that are more patient-centered and therefore more effective. He traces this ubiquitous issue to the 1950s, mid-60s, years ago when the solution to overflowing state hospitals housing thousands of patients on big compounds with little treatment reallocated care to the community. Eventually, the community care system was overwhelmed and diluted by patients that were not severe cases but were just the same entitled to care. At that point, care for the severe mentally ill was diluted along with funds, and Gardner sees what he calls an entrepreneurial model evolve as a result to maximize efficiency and lower costs. A needed solution, he says, though not always with the patient at heart. Optum is optimistic. Rick Elariaga is the executive director of Optum Health in Salt Lake County.
11: So in working with Salt Lake County, um, we are working to bring innovative programs and services that have historically not been here, Um, expanding our network um, in our fee-for-service market, which is more of a fee-for-service model, as well as working and continuing to work with our primary provider, which is Valley Mental Health, to coordinate services. Optum Health believes in hope. And is a recovery supported organization and we, we support our clients and if there's any need or anyone who needs to access services to please contact us directly and that number is 877-370-8172.
3: Optum is the new solution. For the first time in decades Valley's multi-million dollar annual contract went up for grabs and after some stiff competition Optum prevailed and was awarded a forty-seven million dollar contract by Salt Lake County to rehaul the system. Tim Whalen is the Salt Lake County Mental Health Director. One
4: of the the reasons why I believe Optum won was in their proposal. They were describing a way to work with our clients that really integrated very really cutting edge practices that had great outcomes, and uh, they just really put together a proposal that said. We're good. We want to do this right. We want to use evidence-based practices in your community. There's a lots of opportunity to really do better, and uh, I think that's why they won, and we're starting to see a lot of new exciting things unfold as we've worked with them.
2: Optum has a lot of support and are avant-garde in being able to evaluate and allocate resources with proper documentation and high accountability with an offer to do it cheaper. It's a tight-run ship. This collaboration was appealing to the county that was both frustrated with the lack of communication from Valley and also needed to establish an infrastructure to better oversee mental health care and bring it up to par. Deb Falvo, the former CEO of Valley Mental Health, was under sharp criticism from many in the mental health care field and did not renew her contract with Valley in 2011. She is now a consultant to Valley. She started there 30 years ago as a nurse and says she has witnessed some dramatic changes.
12: Having been in the business this long, I've had an opportunity to see when funding was pretty much, um, the dollars flowed pretty easily, with very little in terms of outcome requirements or even documentation requirements. We've been much slower to get to that than physical health care. Before the Optum takeover, Deb was
2: already implementing a more entrepreneurial approach.
12: Our physicians have had an opportunity under the, the old model to spend a lot of time with clients. And the model that is more similar to the rest of the country in terms of productivity, in terms of the way the funding works, in terms of just the time spent, there will be less actual time spent with each, each client. What we're being asked to do is not unusual for the rest of the country, but it is unusual and new for for us. And and obviously I, I believe that we've been good stewards of the dollars and good stewards of the care.
2: That's the point of contention. Because of the new model, where patients spend less time with their doctor, and because funds at Valley are anywhere from 65 to 80 percent of what they were in the height of funding, many patients are lost negotiating the system. To address the problem, the county and Optum have outsourced the crisis line to University of Utah Neuropsychiatric Institute, known as UNI.
4: Waylon explains. So we're going to have three mobile crisis outreach teams, and they're now in place, and you access them by dialing the uni crisis line. And um, these teams can be dispatched anywhere in Salt Lake County where there's a psychiatric or behavioral health crisis.
13: We're busy. We're busy all the time. And is it 24 hours? 24 hours a day. That's right.
3: Barry Rose, manager of the uni crisis center, says they received over 3,000 calls a month with a notable increase in the past year. Evenings are their busiest times, and the most common calls are lost patients trying to find out how to see a doctor and get prescriptions filled, depression, anxiety, and suicide.
13: We, we've had some callers already that have called us here that were... We had one person that called us. Uh, he was calling from his car and his cell phone, and he was thinking about killing himself, and... Uh, he talked to one of our, our crisis workers in the evening for probably an hour. Um, after an hour, he felt comfortable and safe enough and trusted our crisis worker enough to kind of tell us where he was. And um, we were able to get the police over to help with the situation. And um, he's since called us back. and was very appreciative. So they'll call us and we'll we'll give them emotional support. Oftentimes it's a matter of helping them talk through whatever the issue is that's overwhelming them so they can sort of get their balance back, get a better perspective of of things and help prioritize how they may move forward and plan to kind of solve some of the problems that are overwhelming them. Many times it's just that's enough. And then let them know that there are people that care and there are people in the community and there are a lot of there are resources to help people. There are less resources than there used to be and, and that is a problem and, and there's a lot of people calling, looking for services and uh, without insurance coverage and those kind of things and it's getting tougher and tougher for those folks. And uh, There are more people I think in crisis in our, in our community right now and they need somewhere to turn and uh, so we're hoping that we can again kind of be there for people and help give them some support and direction.
3: Barry started at Valley Mental Health in 1988 working in the crisis field. Since Valley could no longer afford to manage the crisis center after all the funding cuts, the county moved it to uni last year and hired Barry to manage it. He was with Valley in their prime and now is witness to Optum's takeover and the stress it has put on patients.
13: I don't know that anybody understood the radical change that would be required you know, for, for them to come in and, and take over that contract. Um, I think it's been really difficult. It's really difficult for a lot of folks with really severe mental illness right now. Um, there are, there's a lot of uncertainty, and those things are really hard for people with mental illness to cope with. The biggest problem right now, I think, is is the weight, because even if one of the sliding scale clinics or or a clinic that that will take somebody without any funding, um, even if they are appropriate to go there, often the wait, waits are months long now. And so that's really a problem, and we just have to kind of uh, try and support people and um, help them kind of create, enlarge their support systems however they can and try and work with them to help get them through.
3: Uni for now is an access point, acting as a friend who listens and consoles in a time of need and an example of part of Optum's strategy to increase the number of community organizations involved in caring for the mentally ill with points of access like NAMI in Salt Lake County to quell the confusion when patients don't know where to go. Rick, the Executive Director of Optum Health in Salt Lake County, says they are aware and have that covered.
11: Optum Health, you know, provides and believes in hope, and we support recovery. Uh, we know that this has been a change for the community. I encourage the, our, everyone who needs help to contact us directly, and I'll repeat our number, it's 877-370-8172, and again, anyone needing help can contact us here at Optum, and we would help support them to um, get the services that are needed.
5: I am not optimistic about Optum, uh, even though uh, their name is a nice marketing name, uh, because it has a whole different set of uh, primary goals and objectives. And uh, they are not ones that uh, ally with best clinical practices regardless of sort of the discussion. They may do some things quite well, uh, but there is a, a, a fundamental intrinsic conflict Uh, that continues to be problematic. And uh, I think as psychiatrists, we have a civic as well as professional responsibility, particularly to our sickest patients, our severe psychotic, chronically ill severe patients to be sure they get all the services they need. It's a trend across the nation, and it's the bureaucratization and a, a sort of assembly line production approach uh, to health care generally uh, but it's so u- uniquely damaging in mental health. I mean you might be able to do this in orthopedic surgery uh, which is very procedure based and people are asleep during their surgery. You know some of those standardization may be very helpful and we have to decide what needs to be standardized and what doesn't. Uh, but I think at the core of it is that mental health treatment is about the treatment of persons not the treatment of diseases. And while the disease may be there, and there are elements of the disease, understanding it and treating it, that are important, it's really the treating of persons that is the foundation of quality mental health care.
3: Noel is concerned about where Optum will prioritize our resources. He's skeptical that economics will be the driving factor, and the system will be even harder to navigate.
5: You've worked with the same provider for the last 10 years and learned to trust and work with them, and suddenly you find out that your pay went to somebody else over here, your housing's done something else, your transportation's been carved out to somebody else, uh, your providers have been moved around to different places with different people. Uh, that becomes uh, completely unmanageable. And so, uh, as a clinician, I am not at all optimistic or happy about this this movement. I think. It's the wrong system. They may be very nice people. I've met people in this, and I think they're nice, well-meaning people, uh, but it is the wrong construct for this population.
3: In what has been called a health care crisis, someone needs to step in and make some changes, and Optum is doing just that.
11: An example of that, an innovative program um, that we're working right now with Valley Mental Health is a jail diversion program, which provides um, a service to inmates who are released from jail, a pickup service and delivery to actual clinical services to help support their medication management or fill prescriptions and or counseling services that we're working with the jail as well as Valley Mental Health in Salt Lake County to provide those services, where historically those individuals who are released or discharged from the jail had been released at all hours and may not have had the opportunity to be linked with services in a timely manner. The novelist and historian Wallace Stigner, who came of age in Salt Lake City, is one of the greatest writers about Utah and the West. He wrote, one cannot be pessimistic about the West. This is the native home of hope. That remains true and whether you're someone who needs services or a provider working to help clients, there is hope. Giving hope to people together with a path to recovery and resiliency is what
10: we do.
2: This series was inspired by a concern being voiced throughout the community that the mental health system is breaking down, leaving some of our most fragile citizens in jeopardy. We don't have all the answers yet, but through this sharing of perspective and ideas, we hope to get closer to doing the right thing. This struggle involves all of us.
10: Okay.